Hey, welcome to TPT's podcast. I'm Dan Friel, and we have a very special guest today to help us preview TPT's semifinals and championship game. We have Fran Frischilla. Fran, how are you today? Dan, I'm doing outstanding. Uh, good to be back home in Dallas as I prepare for next week's uh, TBT semis and finals in Baltimore. I'm really uh, obviously looking forward to that. Yeah, you've had a busy summer, Fran. It's almost every summer. It seems like you're probably away from home more than you are home, right? Yeah, yeah, it's just true. You know, I always tell my wife I'm going to cut back on my summer schedule, and uh, and it never turns out that way. And I've, I've been very fortunate that uh, since the end of the college basketball season where people really – you know, seem to think I reside. Um, I been you know, I, I did the NBA Combine in May, the NBA Draft in June, uh, the NBA Summer League uh, in July. Obviously, TBT, and then I sprinkle in my involvement then with Under Armour's high school uh, All American camp. And uh, right after TBT next week, I'll be flying out to uh, San Francisco to direct uh, the Under Armour Steph Curry camp uh which you know which steph basically works with 24 of the best high school players in the country so i'm really fortunate uh to be involved on a 365 day a year basis on something that i don't consider a job but more of a labor of love absolutely and you know fran one of the things that's interesting too is that when you just said that you know you don't consider it a job you consider it um, you know, more of a passion or labor of love, that sort of thing. I mean, yes. it really comes through when you talk yep. about basketball. Have you always been that way, or is that sort of like an epiphany that you've had as you've gotten older? No, no, Dan. Dan, I grew up. I grew up in Brooklyn. I grew up about five miles from uh, where we were this last weekend at LIU uh, on the other side of Brooklyn, uh, which doesn't seem like far, but there's probably four million people in between where we were, where my, where, <laughs> where I grew up, but. Uh, uh, but no, I, I've been, I was fortunate, you know, New York city, uh, you know, there's an expression. I read a book back uh, when I was a kid called the city game by Pete Axtell. And, uh, you know, he described New York as the epicenter of basketball really. And, uh, for many of us, it, um, whether it's the basketball culture, Madison square garden, uh, many of us who grew up in New York, we grew up with a great, you know, we loved our New York Knicks and we love, uh, I love, playing i was a good athlete growing up uh in brooklyn i played uh particularly baseball and basketball but about 13 or 14 basketball became my passion and uh and and it's something i've been i i think about basketball every day of the year uh ever since then Uh, honestly there's never a day that goes by where i'm not doing something that's basketball related so i um I look back at my, you know, honestly, my life and think about the fact that I've never worked a day in my adult life and that this passion for this orange leather ball has, you know, has taken me around the world. It's taken me to 48 states, um, you know, and it's uh, it's been good to me and my family. So I, I feel very, very fortunate to be involved with the game of basketball. It really is interesting to me, Fran, you know, having been involved in the game so long that you can still get excited about stuff. And your excitement about TBT really comes through <laughs> when I'm watching these games. And I don't often yeah. get a chance to watch them because I'm there in person, but yeah. I did get a chance to, to listen to you this weekend a lot and I've listened to a lot of the replays as well. But it seems like you really enjoy calling yeah. these games. And a part of it seems to be the fact that it overlaps a lot with what you do on international basketball for ESPN, but also that most of these guys are guys that you've called games for or you know, perhaps at this point, maybe not coached, but that you've seen play in college, yeah. and now you're seeing them as as grown men. I mean, can you talk a little bit about that too? Yeah, you, uh, you're so you're you're 100 on, Dan. I got to tell you, uh, 
talk about epiphanies uh, this weekend. Of course, I, you know I know virtually every guy in the tournament, and and I've met and been around them or called their games. I'd say ninety, eighty to ninety percent of these guys. But one of the epiphanies I had this weekend was after the after the purple and black loss. Um, they uh, these are these are former Kansas State players, and you know I've been doing the Big Twelve for uh, over a decade now at ESPN, and to go up to those guys after the game and talk to them, it was like, oh my God, these aren't the teenagers I remember. These are grown men, very mature, uh, very professional. And, uh, you know, it warmed my heart to see a guy like Curtis Kelly, who uh, transferred from UConn, grew up in, in, in the Bronx, you know, went to Rice High School, went to UConn, high school All-American, went to Kansas State, had his ups and downs, and now is, um, you know, now playing professionally. He, he had a huge smile on his face when he saw me. And uh, <laughs> that, that happens a lot in TBT for me. So I'm, I'm watching guys that I remember as teenagers, and now they're grown men, um, vast majority of them doing really well. And, uh, yeah, I, 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 and the other reason I have a passion for TBT, to be honest with you, is because it's, it's uh, it's reality TV on a basketball court. I mean, these guys are playing their hearts out, knowing that 63 teams are going to come away with you know uh, no, no prize, no financial prize, and it's going to boil down to one game. And uh, I just love the grit, the grind, the toughness, the emotion, the exhilaration, uh, the sadness uh, that that TBT brings out in players and. I wanted to I wanted to bust through the TV screen. I want someone at home to see this and say, "Man, I enjoyed that. The game was played at a really high level by a bunch of guys that were playing like their life depended on it." And uh, while it's not that serious, you and I both know that they play like their life depended on it. Yeah, exactly. I think it's a good way to think about it because obviously sports has its place in society. It's supposed to be entertaining and everything else. But when you're on the court, like it just is impossible <laughs> to see. You know, the emotion, for example, that Eric Diefendorf brings when he plays and, and not get right. kind of wrapped up in that, you know, good or bad. You know, the, you called that Bayheim's Army yeah. team FOE game and just an unbelievable comeback. And to see the fans get so yeah. ecstatic about it, that must have been an incredible thing to see, huh? Well, it was because I've never, I, I can't remember very many games I've broadcast in my whole career at, at any level that, that had the complete turnaround this one did. Because as you and I both know, we were there. I mean, there was a, there was a stretch for the first half and a little bit that uh, Team Foe was just dominating the action, and uh, and and so you know, and you got to call it the way you see it. And I, you know, I remember saying early in the game, you know, the zone's getting shredded. You know, I mean, you can't zone a team of professionals who moves who now they're not in college anymore. I think I jokingly, I'm sure Jim Beheim heard me say this, <laughs> but you know, you're not playing Cornell or Niagara, yeah. and uh, you know, and and uh, and that's that seems to be true. Last year, Pittsburgh, uh, the, the uh, Pittsburgh alumni knocked off Beheim's army because they had so much success against the zone, and uh, and these guys are better than they were in college. They shoot it better, and that's what we saw for the first half, and then some. And then the complete turnaround, the adjustments in the zone, the, the underrated heroes like Shante Riley, uh, the big playmaking of James Sutherland and Howard Trish and Eric Devendorf, guys that, you know, you and I have, you know, rem <clears throat> remember watching uh, play in college. So it had everything. And you talk about drama and excitement. <clears throat> that game 
in and of itself, I think, epitomized what TBT has meant this first four years. It was a incredible swing of emotions. Really was. It's incredible too. I thought just how out of it Bayheim's army looked in that game. I mean, honestly, yeah. and, and you could hear yeah. it. I think when you and Doug were were calling the game, it's like you know you could hear it at about the you know sixteen fifteen minute mark. Okay, this is what they'd have to do if this could ever happen, you know. And then, sure enough, like the things that you guys were saying yeah. needed to happen actually did. What what goes through a, a team's yeah. mind, uh, Fran? You know, like FOE when they see a team starting to come back like that. The crowd is obviously, and it was full of you know, B- you know, Bayham's Army fans. What goes through with the yeah. team on the other side's mind, and especially the coaching staff? Because it was really interesting to watch visually what was going on with the Morris twins, I thought, uh, as they were trying to kind of stem yeah. the tide of what was inevitably going to be a, a huge comeback from Bayheim's army. Yeah, you know, I, I think it's a great point. And, and, you know, whether it's TBT or the NCAA tournament or the NBA, you know, this is a dynamic that goes on uh, as a coach and as a player. I mean, you get a big lead because you play with great confidence, you play well, you demoralize the other team and then you hit some adversity and then what do you do you know normally you don't fold normally you know we've seen teams lose big leads and hang on to win and um, i was fully expecting for Bayheim's army to make a little bit of run get it to within 10 and then you know team fall would do what they had done most of the game which is with good players step up and make big plays but the uh as as the game turned and as it got inside of 10 i started to think to myself well, maybe the thought of losing all this money really does weigh on somebody's mind because, you know, it's not the same dynamic that we would see in a college game where a team loses a lead like this. And I've seen that, but this is a little different, you know, all the, and I say this, you know, you and I are going to experience this next week. Uh, uh, the teams that win on Monday have a day off in between before the championship. And it's human nature for both teams individually as players to start counting the money in their head like wow if i win i'm going to give some to my mom i'm going to put some in my daughter's college funds i'm going to buy a new car down payment on the house and so you know you just wonder because it is reality tv how much the prize money really weighs on somebody as adversity hits and i really think that that's what we saw at the end of that game on sunday that uh you know team foe just you know i hate to say it but they just they they folded under the weight of the pressure of you know of a lot of things, but you know possibly the fact that they saw two million dollars being you know uh, you know put in an incinerator, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've actually had I've had guys from the teams that have lost before. You know, whether it's the semifinals, or the championship, tell me that part of what happened was they think that the guys had spent the money in their head and just assumed that they were going to win because they had obviously won four or five games in a row up to that point. You feel like you can never lose, and ultimately somebody's going to. Uh, It's really interesting that you bring up the money aspect of it because it is a different dynamic sort of than what you're seeing in the NBA because you've got a guaranteed contract or college where you're not being paid at all. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, just just anecdotally, um, at last year's TBT Finals, um, I stayed at the same hotel as Team Colorado. And, you know, game ended, um, you know, uh, as, a, as a broadcaster, uh, you know, my, my, my broadcast ends the same every, every game. There's usually, if it's a great game like we had, it's, it's the exhilaration of being a part of something special. And then I'm thinking, man, I hope that, um, you know, I hope that Cheesecake Factory near my hotel is open when I get back. You know, that's my main thought process. And I remember 
going back to my hotel and I, and I, it dawned on me that I was going back to the team Colorado hotel also. And, uh, I can't describe the devastation that they, that those guys endured from losing that 18 point lead in the first half, uh, to overseas elite and the incredible comeback. And this a great, really great basketball game that we saw from both teams last year, but it really hit home to me because it, it was, Again, it's sports. It's the playground of life. But it looked like people had just lost a loved one. Um, that's how the players reacted to the loss and uh, the commiseration, uh, the fact that they were, you know, all devastated. I saw it on their faces, Dan. It was an incredible emotional event for me, and it just taught me, you know, just how a how 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 important these games are. Um, what's at stake, and then probably most importantly, the bonding that these guys have over, you know, if you're lucky enough to play five or six games, the bonding that you have. And then, of course, if it's an alumni team, the bonding goes even deeper because, you know, like especially this coming week, we're going to watch Syracuse and Ohio State alums. And I remember David Lighty telling me, you know, after the game on Sunday, I never thought I'd get to put on a uniform with my, my old teammates again. So there's so many things that, you know, for me, makes this TBT uh, experience special. As, as somebody, as we get back to, as I said earlier, I'm a junkie. And to, to, to be a part of this ride and watch the range of emotions is amazing. You know, one of the things that I always think, and I, I often say this about these guys that play in TBT, they're all playing internationally someplace. Uh, you know, at the, I think at the yeah. round of eight, the only non-professional. So the only guy that didn't draw a paycheck from playing basketball in 2016 or 17 was Eric Devendorf. And, you know, he could have been if he wanted to. But in any event, to play internationally, Fran, I think, as you know, probably better than anybody, you have to be resilient if you're an American because you're going from country to country. Sometimes you're not getting paid. Sometimes you're not getting paid what you promised. And I'm wondering, you know, what you think about trying to come back from that kind of a loss. You know, you get to the semifinals, you're one win away from potentially you know, winning the 2 million and then you lose. And then how do they come back the next year? You know, like what, what can you say or what would you, is it the fact that these guys are sort of by natural selection tough? How do they come back from that? Yeah. Well, I think it's the bonding. You know, I think it's like, you know, remember these guys in in many cases, they played, played together uh, in college, uh, even the alumni teams, and maybe they didn't play in the same years, but they played in the off season, you know, back at, back at college. So, you know, the devastation of a loss is trumped by the fact that there's great bonding, you know, and the fact that let's, you know what? Yeah, we lost, but this was one of the great exhilarating rides of my basketball life. And let's crank it up and do it again. I mean, here's a perfect example. Bayheim's army, you know, well, that uh, this is the first year they actually got together and had a training camp up in Syracuse. So, um, you know, after losing last year <clears throat> down in Philadelphia, and I think it was the Sweet 16, I believe, when they lost to Pittsburgh. I'm sure it was now. Yep. Um, <clears throat> they they got obliterated, you know, and um, they came back and said, we're going to do this again, but let's do it a little bit better. Let's have a training camp. Let's commit a couple days of our time and meet up in Syracuse. So, um, you know, but sports is about uh, being resilient. And I always say uh, the number one job description of a college or professional coaches, crisis management coordinator. And the players are, are the same way, you know. Um, sports teaches you adversity, you know, sacrifice, trust in your teammates, working hard, you know, helps helps you succeed. 
we can go the litany of, of lessons that's, that, you know, sports and in particular basketball teaches. So, you know, losing a heartbreaker in a TBT and seeing these teams back come back now year after year, um, I think is what makes is one of the things that makes this tournament so special, the ability to get back on the court and do it again. And uh, by the way, that reminds me, I'm going to have to have a talk with Michael Rappaport about my stick man because <laughs> I am very disappointed <clears throat> with the stick man as a, as a longtime stick man fan. Uh, you know, I don't. I didn't expect this kind of this nonsense. So uh, it's tough to pull no, together a team. It's tough to put, tough to pull together a team without a common background, you know. And so sometimes it works, and sometimes yeah. it doesn't. One team that it has worked for, I know, undisputedly, uh, indisputedly, is Overseas Elite. Um, yeah. And then you know, yeah. coupling with what you've talked about, they're the team that really has not, to this point, seventeen to zero, have not experienced any sort of uh, setbacks in TPT. I mean, can can that team be beaten, Fran? Well, they can be. Yeah, I don't think there's any question. I think the four teams, I thought the eight teams we had left uh, over the weekend were all capable of winning the title. And now we've got four really good teams. And uh, <clears throat> I absolutely think, uh, I'll be honest, I, I need Brent Musburger involved in this final four because I can't tell uh, who's going to win this thing. And as I look at, you know, I mean, Team ALS, you might think that they're kind of an underdog, but uh, I mean, anybody who knows, you know, Casper Ware and and uh, you know guys like Marvell Harris, you know hopefully Sean Marshall's going to return to you know to play. Kevin Pinkney played in the NBA. I mean these are good teams, all four. Uh, so the great thing about Overseas Elite is their professionalism. Uh, they don't practice together. Uh, they travel the world and they go their separate ways. But what we've seen now over two seasons, uh, Dan is just that. Um, and I've always seen this as someone who loves international basketball. If you learn how to play the game the right way, and it's like going to the Y and you play with four other guys that really know basketball, it's fun. You know, guys move the ball. There's no ball hog. <clears throat> and it's the same way when you play with other professional players. They all play in team-oriented systems around the world. They all have certain great strengths that they possess, which is why they're pros. And in, in overseas elites, case you see that all come together now this is the third straight year we see it come together and so when you add a terrific player like Oliver Lafayette who's well known in Europe particularly um, you see this great chemistry which is fun to see because don't have to practice four weeks to get it like you said we do have four great teams it's unbelievable to me how good these alumni teams are this year uh, top to bottom I mean every one of them seem to have been fantastic but I'm always intrigued by these teams that kind of come together and then I think the phrase that I saw armored athlete use is that they play for them for each other uh, rather than play for yes. somebody else. And it really is going to be interesting. Uh, Fran, I'm really curious also, I mean, you, you obviously know a lot about overseas elite and TBT and where those guys play. And, you know, just even knowing that yeah. Oliver Lafayette has had a great overseas career and has won a couple of Euro cups is a yeah. big deal. But how did you get involved in international basketball to begin with? Like, how is it that, <laughs> you know, a guy from, from Brooklyn and, you know, coaching in Manhattan, New Mexico and Providence and all over the country, how did you get involved in the international yeah. element of the game? Well, first of all, um, as I said earlier, I'm a basketball junkie. Um, and last I checked, the ball overseas is still round and still orange, although the you know, quite honestly, the FIBA ball's not, you know, it's got those <laughs> white panels, but, you know, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's basketball. And, um, the way it happened organically for me was that, um, I started going overseas as a college coach 
at Manhattan College, I had a terrific player from Madrid, Spain on my team for four years, was a great student and a terrific player. And I can remember 1995, uh, I took my team to Spain before his senior year to take him home. And we had a fabulous tour of Spain. And then that led me to doing uh, coaching clinics in places like Iceland, Spain, Greece, France, Germany. And uh, so I got to know international hoops that way. And along around 19, oh, 2003, when I went to ESPN, my my uh, my boss at ESPN, who, who did college basketball in the NBA draft, said, would you like to be the draft guy and do the international guys? And I volunteered immediately. And at, at the exact same time, roughly, within a few weeks, um, I went over to the uh, Reebok Euro Camp in Treviso, Italy, to cover the camp and look at the young players. It's kind of like the international combine for the NBA. And I knew this in advance. The camp was run by one of my former Manhattan players who had had a good playing career in Europe and now was both in a scout for the Mavericks and a, a, a Reebok representative. So I knew I'd be treated first class. I went to the camp and Donnie Nelson, who, who I know from here, living here in Dallas, said, wait a minute. No, you're not going to cover the camp. You're going to coach. And so he threw me he threw me into the camp as a coach, and I coached the next 11 years. And uh, I got to know every good player in, in the NBA draft, and many of them are still playing. And uh, once that started, Dan, this love of, of the international game really took hold, and I became ESPN's FIBA guy. Um, <clears throat> last summer, my former boss who hired me at ESPN, the guy I mentioned, and, and is now at NBC, uh, got permission from ESPN to allow me to do the Olympics for NBC. And, and because of my knowledge of all the players that played on the other teams besides USA. So again, because of my love of the game and it didn't matter where it is, whether it's CBT or G league or summer league or, uh, you know, international basketball. Um, if it's, if it, if the ball bounces and the rims are 10 feet high, you know, count me in. That's fantastic. I'm afraid also, I mean, it seems like, it's running in the blood in the family as well. Both of your sons now are involved in coaching too. I mean, that must be a fun thing to see them kind of following in your footsteps, huh? Well, it is. And, uh, you know, like the, the little guy, Matt, who just graduated from Harvard. I, I thought for sure he was going to be at Goldman Sachs by now, you know, and, uh, <laughs> uh, because he has that kind of entrepreneurial mind and business sense. But, uh, after his sophomore year, Dan, we were having lunch in Cambridge and he said, uh, Hey dad, I think I want to coach. And I was a little surprised. Now, he was an extremely smart player as a high school player, so it didn't shock me. But um, I said, why? And he had the greatest answer of all. He goes, you know, I don't know. I just love being around the basketball office. And, you know, that, that you know, he loved his coaches. You know, he loved the assistants. He loved Tommy Amaker. And, and James was the same way. He was a walk-on at Oklahoma and uh, since then has been in the D-League and at Indiana last year. And I think he'll be with an NBA franchise coming up here. But here's how I analyze it. They saw their dad have a job that he absolutely loved, and they wanted to be a part of it. And so I have no complaints with that. You know, as I told you earlier, I haven't worked a day in my adult life. And um, the one thing I always tell young people is find a job you can be passionate about, because if you're passionate about it, you're going to do it really well and have a lot of fun doing it. And so... Uh, yeah, I, I kind of feel like they just by osmosis watch their dad have a great life and, 
the fact that they both want to coach, uh, one in the NBA, one, one wants to be an NBA coach, one a college coach. Um, I get it. I get it because um, I, now I, I explain the heartache that comes involved, com- comes with it, but, you know, they're willing to uh, take the chances because they love the game like I do. What was the hardest one that you left, the hardest job that you left? Oh, there's no doubt. Manhattan College, it was my first job. Uh, I had great kids. I had great success. And, um, you know, there's an innocence about being a young coach for the first time at the mid-major level and thinking that you can be a head coach and you you leave Providence College like I did as an assistant. You take over at Manhattan. Steve Lapis, uh, the former coach, left me a great group of kids. And I'll never forget uh, the day that I was uh, telling my team in Manhattan that I was taking the St. John's job. And they all came over to my office. And I, I told my I'll never forget this. I was walking down the stairs at the gym and I told my wife, I said, this, this is going to be this. We just we just finished the best four years of our coaching career. Um, so because you were, after you were that, aware of that become, at the time, like you felt that at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, yeah, cause I'd been, I'd been at the big East and the big 10 as an assistant. I know how much, how big, how big a business it is. And, um, I didn't, ex- you know, I didn't expect, uh, you know, uh, I didn't know what was next for me, but I definitely knew that what we had at Manhattan was special, but you know, you can't really stay there in the sense that, um, uh, my athletic director, who was great to me, my president, who was great to me, they basically said, look, we can't can't pay you any more than we're paying you. So when the time comes for you to take the step to the big time, we're with you 100%. In the meantime, stay here as long as you want. Yeah. So now, you know, a job like St. John's comes calling and it's going to, you know, quadruple your salary and you got two little kids and you kind of have to take it. And uh, for me... It actually was easy because my my network was already in place in New York City. So uh, we had two great years there. Um, you know, it didn't end the way I wanted it to because uh, uh, I, I, I was I was looking at another job and the powers that be at St. John's weren't happy about it. And uh, and I think at that time I didn't I didn't have like Coach K in my corner or somebody like that. I was just a kid from Brooklyn and. Uh, I hate to say it because Chris Mullen is a, I've watched Chris since he was 14, but, uh, I kind of put the whammy on the program the last two, two decades and they haven't really recovered. <laughs> but now that, now that Chris is back, seriously, I'm kind of hoping that they can get it back because it's been too long. And, uh, uh, but, um, I, I had a great coaching run and then I fell into broadcasting and, um, I have never looked back. I've had two great careers. How do you look at the game differently now as a broadcaster? Like I imagine that when you were coaching, broadcasters were almost, not necessarily enemy friend, but kind of, you know, like a, yeah. a thorn in your side. Adversarial. Yeah. And now you're on the other side yeah. of it. And I'm curious, like, do you look at how the coaches respond to, you know, either your questioning of a strategy move or whatever? Do you look at that differently now than well, you did when you were coaching? Well, I've certainly got a different perspective because I sit across the uh, court from them and watch them go crazy. But uh, I think on the flip side of that is um, – well, first of all, you need to know I'm always learning the game. So I certainly don't know it all. And uh, I'm always learning. I still do a lot of high school and college coaching clinics. So I'm around the game. I'm, I'm, I'm aware of the trends, the coaching trends, the X and O trends. But I, I think coaches, by and large, I've had very, very few problems with coaches who have broadcast games. And I think in part because I see the game the way they do, and when their team stinks, they know it as much as I do. 
so if I say, hey, this is just a poor performance tonight uh, by whoever, Kansas, um, it's not an indictment of Bill Self, certainly. He's going into the Hall of Fame in September. Because what I found has happened is that if I talk to Bill after the game, he'll say, we stunk. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of have a coach's sensibility. Um, They kind of know that I see what they see. And if I say it honestly and without, you know, in a, in a constructively critical way, um, they know I'm right most of the time. And when I'm not right, I make sure that there's enough self-deprecating, you know, humor about it that I can say, hey, you know what? Tom Izzo's been to six Final Fours and I've been to none. So he obviously knew what he was doing. All right. We've got three big games next week, Fran, uh, all live on ESPN. The first two are going to take place on Tuesday, August 1st at 7 and then at 9 p.m. The first game is going to have Scarlet and Gray, the Ohio State alumni team versus Team Challenge ALS. What what should we look for in that matchup? Oh, yeah, that's a good one. That's going to be a good one. Um, Man, I I couldn't even begin to tell you who's going to win the game because i got so much respect for the players on both sides. I mean – you know, I, I can tell you one thing that uh, what I've seen at a, at a two games from Aaron Kraft, he doesn't have to do, he doesn't have to score to dominate a game, and so this is the same Aaron Kraft we watched play at Ohio State was the four time defensive All Big Ten team defensive player of the year, uh, defensive player of the year in the D League, and he dominates games with his uh, hustle and grit and uh, you know his, his head. And so it's going to be an interesting matchup because Casper Ware uh, is a very accomplished uh, former NBA player. And so I'm going to be looking at that matchup, you know, um, and because Aaron Kraft is going to head, head to Monaco this year and play in French Pro A where Casper's resided here recently. And uh, these are two really, really good players. And then I think, you know, the other storyline in this game aside from the fact that this is the same Ohio State team that was the number one seed back in 2011 with the top six out there, is uh, Jared Sollinger. You know, he's he. this is his job interview. Um, this kid's only 25 years old, former Naismith player of the year, and obviously the only reason he's not in the NBA is health. So I'm anxious to see how he does. And then, of course, Sean Marshall's the wild card because he's still a terrific player, but uh Give give challenge ALS credit. They were they managed to get through the sweet you know the the Super Sixteen and and uh, win the round of eight without him. So I think that's going to be a terrific matchup. Austin Day really seemed fired up on on Sunday too. A little less so on Saturday, but ooh, to get that kind ooh, of emotion out of him, oh yeah. you know it means something, right? Great point. Yeah, you know I can't believe I didn't mention Austin. Uh, yeah, no, he was he was amazing, and you know there was a little trash talk in there between him and Jalen Reynolds of uh, Armored Elite. And, <laughs> Yeah. And Jalen has been uh, has been known to trash talk a little bit, but uh, you know Austin Day put that trash right where it belongs in the trash can, <laughs> and, uh, and was uh, uh, you know there was that one stretch of about what four minutes right where Austin just dominated the game, and you said to yourself, well that's what an NBA player looks like, you know. So uh, I, I know I know he's played overseas recently, but uh, you know Austin can, Austin really had a great uh, a great uh, game. All right, so the second game is live at on ESPN again, 9 o'clock. It's going to feature the two-time defending champions, Overseas Elite, against the Syracuse alumni team, Bayheim's Army. Uh, Fran, what does Bayheim's Army have to do to beat Overseas Elite? Well, first of all, I, I get goosebumps just when you – I'm, I'm looking at the two TV charts in front of me, and I'm like, wow, this is going to be a game. I mean, this is going to be like when I do a Big Ten, <laughs> yeah. Big 12, you know, uh, semifinal, I, and I feel that way. Uh, well, I think they got to keep their composure, which they did. 
against, uh, you know, against uh, Team Foe, obviously. And, uh, you know, and, and and it would certainly help if I, I understand that Dante Green said he was going to live in the gym this week because uh, he was the one guy that did not have a good game. But they've got to keep their composure because, you know, overseas elite is not going to beat themselves. Now, for overseas elite, Dan, this is going to be really interesting because this is the first time that I can, I, I, and I didn't, I can't, I, I don't have the history of knowledge that you do about all 17 wins, but I can't imagine that, that, that they're going to see a zone defense like they're going to see, uh, you know, on Monday, on Tuesday. So how they handle the two, three zone is going to be really interesting because we know how good a team they are. We know how well they play together. But all of a sudden, you know, you're asking them to, uh, you know, they've been speaking Spanish here for 17 games, and now they've got to speak Portuguese, right. you know? Right. And that's, how I, that's the analogy. You know, they're going to see, you know, I, here's what I always say about uh, man-to-man and, and zone. Uh, they've seen fastballs, okay? They hit the fastball really well, the man-to-man, and now they're going to see, you know, the Mariano Rivera cutter. Because very few teams will play zone for an entire game like uh, like Beheim's Army wants to do. So that's going to be an interesting uh, puzzle to solve for overseas elite. But poise and composure for Beheim's Army, the adjustment to the zone defense uh, for overseas elite, I think are going to be keys. Yeah, I think you'll see big, big games from Kyle Fogg and Eric McCollum uh, against that Beheim's Army team. So we'll see. If those guys are hitting, yep. they're obviously tough to beat. Could be a really amazing final no matter what happens in that championship game. That's going to be live on Thursday night, 7 o'clock on ESPN. Fran, I kept you a little longer than uh, I had told you I would. I really appreciate your time. Looking forward to seeing you in Baltimore next week. Absolutely, Dan. It's, uh, it's, going, to be, it's going to be great. And, uh, and I'm just hoping, I'm hoping that as many basketball fans as possible tune in. If they haven't seen TBT before, they're going to see uh, you know, all those range of emotions plus great play that you and I have seen. Uh, the first uh, four years. Absolutely. Thanks again, Fran. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Dan. 